evening, everybody. Uh, my name is, as always, uh, Steve Tinney, and I'm still the Deputy Director of the Penn Museum. Uh, many thanks to you again for coming out to tonight's installment of the Penn Museum's Great Lectures. This year, of course, our theme is Great Beasts of Legend, and the next lecture in our series will be on May 3rd, and will feature Dr. Devon Patel of Penn's Department of South Asian Studies, who will be talking about, get this, man lions, blood seed, demons, and wish-fulfilling cows. Sounds amazing, right? As usual, after our presentation, there'll be some time for Q&A. And if you'd like to ask a question, again, as usual, um, we'd like you to come to one of the mics that's on either side in the aisles and ask the question from there so that everybody can hear the question as well as the speaker's answer. So, to tonight's speaker. Patrick Glo Glothier, it's hard for me not to say Glothier, Patrick Glothier is a lecturer in the Department of Classical Studies here at Penn and received his PhD from Columbia University with a dissertation entitled Science and Poetry in Imperial Rome, Manilius, Lucan, and the Etna. Dr. Glothier's research focuses on Latin literature and the cultural and intellectual history of the late Republic and early Empire. He is particularly interested in Roman constructions and representations of knowledge about the natural world. So you can imagine that fits well with tonight's topic, probably. His current book project, which is based on his dissertation, is called The Scientific Sublime in Imperial Rome, Manilia, Seneca, Lucan, and the Etna. Patrick lists his research interests as Latin literature, especially post-Augustan poetry, didactic poetry and its influence relationship sorry, to epic, ancient science and intellectual history, ancient literary criticism, including ancient scholarship, very broad range, you see, and rhetorical theory, and finally, my personal favorite, the sublime. Something we should all be interested in, I think. Here at Penn, Patrick teaches a wide range of classes in Greek and Latin uh, language and literature, and I'm very grateful, we're very grateful, that he's agreed to give of his time and expertise to join us here tonight. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Patrick Glothier, who will speak on Beasts in the Night Sky, the Constellation Myths of Greece and Rome. Thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, thank you all for coming out. Um, does this volume sound okay? Yeah? All right. Up? Louder? Yeah? Well, okay. I'll, I'll try to project. <laughs> so basically what I want to do uh, today is to use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit and think a little bit about the history of the Greco-Roman constellations. I'm going to start in the Archaic period uh, with Homer and then move all the way uh, to the early first century CE with, uh, with the Emperor Augustus. Uh, there's a lot uh, of ground to cover in there. So as I was putting uh, this talk together, I found myself wondering why I offered to talk about the ancient constellations at all. Uh, what I mean by that is why uh, I find the con why do I find the constellations interesting in my role as a professional classicist? Here's what I've decided. The constellations straddle the modern divide between scientific analysis and artistic creation. They're deeply embedded in the history of mathematical astronomy, and yet they're fundamentally aesthetic, 
stubbornly playful, and very much alive to the imagination. A dynamic tension between scientifically imposed order and the chaotic centrifugal flight of associative thinking animates the Greek sky, makes the constellations fascinating, and forces us to think about the ways in which scientific discourse interacts with other areas of cultural production and meaning. So I hope over the next 45 minutes or so, I can try to unpack what that really means a little bit. Um, <clears throat> allow me to set the stage. The stars in the sky are continually moving. Let's see if this works. Ah, brilliant. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, although they remain fixed in place relative to one another, it looks like they all circle around a common point. Throughout the night, most stars emerge from the eastern horizon and journey westward in a long arc before slipping out of view. Others rotate in a short circle and always remain visible. So this is a time-lapse fo time photograph, right? The stars emerge and go in a big circle. These ones here, you can always see them if you stay out all night long. These are called circumpolar stars. The natural conclusion, if you've got a keen sense of spatial reasoning, is that the stars themselves are set on a giant sphere, and that the sphere itself rotates around the Earth from east to west, the slight angle, completing one rotation every 24 hours. The stars closest to the top of the sphere, right, so the sphere sort of rotates in this direction. The stars up here are circumpolar, they never set. Most of the stars exist in this sort of area, they rise here and then set over the course of the night. And then, depending on where you are, the stars that are down here, you can never see them, right? They just don't rise. Um, and what this looks like and what stars are where changes uh, depending on where you are on Earth. So here's another uh, example. Um, <clears throat> this is what we call the, the celestial sphere, right? And again, it rotates sort of eastward in this direction. So here right, is the constellation Orion. And you have to imagine, um, if you're looking at the sky, right, this is circling around you, right, like this. So these are what we call the fixed stars. In addition to the fixed stars, there are also the wandering stars. And these are the sun, the moon, and the five visible planets, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, Mars, uh, and Venus. Now, the wandering stars move more or less on an imaginary line on the celestial sphere called the ecliptic. So this is sort of the ecliptic here. You've got the sun, the moon, a couple planets. So they move more or less along the ecliptic, and as the celestial sphere turns from east to west, it appears to carry the wandering stars with it. All right, so they move in this direction. Now, the ecliptic is marked by the signs of the zodiac. Right? So here again is the ecliptic traversing the sky. And you see the signs right here is an outline of Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces, um, Taurus over here. Right? And this whole thing moves collectively in this direction. As the celestial sphere turns westward, the wandering stars, such as the sun, appear to move slowly in the opposite direction, eastward periodically making one complete trip around the celestial sphere. So when the sun is in Pisces, um, this is mid-February, right? And if you come out again at the same time of day, at the same spot, you look up in the air, right? If you could see the stars in the background, 
in March, the sun wouldn't be in Pisces, right? It'd be in Aries, right? The whole background would have shifted, right? So the stars that are around the sun change over the course of the year. So in the case of the sun, uh, this journey, this periodic journey, takes roughly 12 months. The sun's annual journey around the celestial sphere has two important consequences. First, it means that different constellations are visible at different times of the year. From an ancient perspective, it was particularly significant that the pre-dawn and post-sunset horizons were continually changing. And think of it like this. At the eastern horizon, just before the sun rises, you'll see Aquarius, right? Aquarius will come up over the horizon. Then the sun rises and you can't see Aquarius anymore. But as the sun is continually moving in this direction, the stars that are rising in front of it are gonna change. When a constellation first becomes visible on the eastern horizon just before dawn, it's said to rise, right? It has a rising. And when it begins to vanish below the western horizon at the same time, it's said to set. And uh, second, the second important consequence of this is that because the ecliptic lies at an oblique angle to the Earth's equator, the sun appears to shuffle continuously between north and south. As it moves, the ratio of day to night changes, and so does the weather. And all these changes are regular, but it takes time and a lot of careful observation to notice it. So the point of this is just that if you go out and look at where the sun rises in December, it's going to rise over here. Um, or sorry, in, in June, it's going to rise here. It's going to be in the sky for a long time before it sets. Right? In spring, it's going to rise here. You, know, you go out tomorrow morning, you're going to see it right over here. Whereas in, uh, in December, right, it's going to be here. So the sun continually seems to move back and forth. Uh, another way to picture it right, is that this is the ecliptic. Right? This is just the band where the sun moves in this direction around the Earth. And these are where all the constellations of the zodiac are. Right? So you've got uh, Cancer is up here, Capricorn is down here, uh, and so on. I promise this is the last uh, astronomical slide that I've got. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> okay. For us, Greek literature begins in the middle of the 8th century BCE with the two Homeric poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer only mentions a small number of constellations and named stars, but many of the key features of later Greco-Roman Greco star discourse are already operative. I want to look at the 18th book of the Iliad. Here, the metalworking god Hephaestus crafts a massive shield for the Greek hero Achilles, whose tragic death is never far from the audience's mind. This is what scholars think the shield that's being described probably looked like. It's a big circle, and it's got all these designs on it. Um, <clears throat> the shield famously contains intricate, uh, lifelike images that, at the very least, symbolize the often difficult realities of human life. Right, a city at peace, a city at war, legal proceedings in a capital case, the main agricultural activities of the Four Seasons, just to name a few. The river ocean runs around the shield's outer rim, and the center contains the earth and a variety of celestial bodies. Homer emphatically foregrounds the images at the center, and this is how the passage begins. Right? So these images right here. He, the god Hephaestus, he made upon it uh, he made the earth upon it, and the sky, and the sea's water, and the tireless sun, and the moon waxing into her fullness, and on it all the constellations that festoon the heavens, the Pleiades and the Hyades, and the strength of Orion and the bear, whom men give also the name of the wagon, 
who turns about in a fixed place and looks at Orion. And she alone is never plunged into the wash of ocean. What we have here is the essential backdrop against which the whole of human life unfolds. And central to this backdrop are the heavenly bodies. But why these bodies? The sun, moon, Pleiades, and Hyades all mark the progression of time. The movement of the sun in particular, uh, sorry, the movement of the sun uh, measures the day and the year, and those of the moon keep track of the month. The Pleiades and Hyades are star clusters in what's now the constellation of Taurus. Right? You can see them here. Um, Taurus's horns, right? and sort of going down to his forelegs. Uh, the Pleiades are in uh, what is now his, um, his shoulder, right? so over here. Uh, and the Hyades aren't labeled, but they're in here, uh, sort of right around like this. Uh, in Homer's day, uh, Taurus didn't exist, um, but these things right, were still, still there and had names. In the 8th century, the Pleiades and Hyades rose, right, they became visible just before, sun, uh, just before dawn, at the beginning of summer, which is the time to start, uh, start reaping. And they set in the late fall, which is the time for plowing and sowing. The presence of all these constellations, sun, moon, Pleiades, and Hyades, on the shield suggests the regular rhythms and fundamental continuity of human life, even in the most even in the midst of a conflict as seemingly unendurable as the Trojan War. The real stars of these lines, though, are Orion and the Bear, the two most conspicuous objects in the night sky. Orion is a shadowy figure. In the Odyssey, Odysseus uh, mentions how he once saw gigantic Orion in the land of the dead, where he was driving together wild animals he himself had killed. Uh, on a lonely mountain. This is Book 11 of the Odyssey. Uh, the shield implies uh, Orion's identity as a hunter, too, for the bear eyes him warily as she wheels about, forever visible at the top of the celestial sphere, when right? she's circumpolar. The never-ending dance in which Orion and the bear are engaged mirrors the deadly conflict in which all the heroes of the Iliad take part, and it subtly suggests the looming showdown between Achilles and his Trojan counterpart, Hector. So here's another example. You can see right, the bear, Ursa Major, um, our big dipper right, is part of it. Ursa Major is sort of looking at Orion right, um, and sort of watching him. Based on passages like this, it's clear that Homer was aware of the practical function that certain constellations serve. By keeping track of the annual movements of such stars, you can measure the progress of the seasons and predict what kind of weather was in store. Such knowledge was essential not only for agriculture, but for seafaring, too. When Odysseus sets sail from Calypso's island in Book 5 of the Odyssey, he cleverly guides his course by the Pleiades, Boötes, Orion, and the bear. Um, one reason uh, the bear is useful for sailing is that these two stars point uh, to the pole star, right, to the, the star at the center of the night sky. They help orient sailors. The idea that astronomical knowledge constituted a fundamental prerequisite for the ability to farm and sail persisted throughout the whole of antiquity. Right? Even after they developed better calendars, people still talked like this. There's a close connection, then, between that which happens up above and that which happens down below here on Earth. The stars, in some sense, are communicative in ways both practical and symbolic. But neither the Iliad nor the Odyssey shows any awareness of the complex astral mythology familiar from later Greco-Roman literature and art. 
It's just not there. One group of constellations that Homer doesn't mention, but that seems unlikely to predate the Iliad and the Odyssey, are those that illustrate the story of Perseus and Andromeda. Uh, so here uh, <clears throat> uh, you've got Cepheus uh, uh, and his wife Cassiopeia. Um, you've got Andromeda right here, Perseus, and the sea monster, Catus. Right. Uh, here's a little uh, <clears throat> fancier uh, version of what they look like. According to legend, Cepheus and Cassiopeia were the king and queen of Ethiopia. When Cassiopeia boasted that she was more beautiful than the sea nymphs, the offended nymphs complained to their father Poseidon, who promptly sent a giant sea monster to harass the Ethiopian coast and plague the land's inhabitants. Distraught, the king consulted an oracle of Zeus, asking what he ought to do. When the oracle commanded him to sacrifice his daughter, Andromeda, to the ravenous beast, the king reluctantly complied, chaining her to a giant rock by the seashore. Enter Perseus, soaring aloft with his winged sandals and deadly scimitar, gifts of Athena and Hermes. The young hero had just killed the Gorgon Medusa and was journeying back to Greece with her severed head in hand when all of a sudden he spotted Andromeda fastened helplessly to her rock and the giant leviathan charging towards her at full steam. Perseus felt instantly in love, slew the monster, and married the girl. So, all the major figures are represented in the night sky. But what's more, uh, they're strategically arranged. Cepheus uh, and Cassiopeia, here you can see this better here. Cepheus uh, and Cassiopeia are in the background, and in the iconography, she's sort of sitting down watching. Uh, Andromeda is out here, right, sort of with her arms splayed, uh, her rock. Perseus is swooping in, and, right, and the monster is looming up from the south, right, making for her, and she, he's going to sort of come in, right, and stop it. Uh, so the arrangement is effective, dramatic even. But for us, the coherence of the scene is obscur obscured by the fact uh, that a few constellations are awkwardly placed in the middle, right? Especially Pisces, Aries, and Taurus, to mention the little triangle here. Um, right? Like, what are these guys doing like, in the middle? They, they sort of spoil it, right? They're photobombing it. Um, <clears throat> these constellations, of course, belong to the zodiac. And as we'll see in a minute, the Greek zodiac did not exist before the late 5th century, at the earliest. That these zodiacal constellations dramatically disrupt Perseus, the Perseus and Andromeda group strongly suggests that the group itself antedates the formation of the zodiac, which in all likelihood means that Perseus and friends emerged in the mid-5th century. Unlike many constellations, there's never any doubt in the ancient sources about who these constellations represent. While ancient authorities argued uh, endlessly about the identity of the twins who make up the constellation Gemini, Perseus is always Perseus, and Andromeda always Andromeda. Their proper names, in other words, define them, so much so that even Catus, whose name uh, in Greek just means sea monster, uh, is always this particular sea monster, not some other mythological sea monster, of which there are actually several. Here's my favorite image of Catus the sea monster. Such consistency and continuity imply that all these figures came into being at the same time and at a late date, and that they may even have been invented by the same person. We know that in the middle of the fifth century, the tragedians Sophocles and Euripides wrote plays about these characters. 
It's tempting to see in the selection of the myth and in the actual staging, as it were, uh, of the figures, the influence of Athenian popular culture on an anonymous, fear-going astronomer. Now, that's all speculation. Um, but it leads us to something a little more concrete. Our modern zodiac consists of 12 constellations that saddle the ecliptic, right? the path along which the sun continuously moves. All right, sorry, I lied. One, one more slide with astronomy. Um, but you already saw the picture, so it's not really a lie. Uh, these 12 constellations, uh, as well as a handful of others, originated in ancient Mesopotamia. Greek stargazers adopted the names and iconography of the Near Eastern constellations in the late 5th or early 4th century, pretty much wholesale and in one fell swoop. Mesopotamian artifacts containing visual representations of animal figures appear as early as the late 4th millennium, around the year 3200 BCE. The earliest artifacts often contained bulls and lions and sometimes scorpions. These creatures were pictured in the sky as the earliest constellations of the zodiac. In other words, Taurus the bull, Leo the lion, and Scorpio the scorpion, right? There's constellations on this belt. Originally, these three star groups, along with Aquarius, marked the cardinal points of the ecliptic, north, south, east, and west, which explains why they might have been developed first. A cylinder seal from Susa, of slightly later date, shows a number of animals and animal-human hybrids that suggest the beginning of zodiacal uh, iconography. Uh, so here's an impression of the seal from about the year uh, 2500. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. Uh, you've got representations right, of the sun, the moon, and the planet Venus, right, telling you that something is going on with the sky. Uh, you've got this figure who is some kind of a hunting god. Oh, it's got a bow right there, and he's standing on, on two dogs. Uh, this might be... Uh, sort of the origin of uh, the constellation Sagittarius, right? the sort of centaur who's got a bow. You've got down here a goddess standing on a lion. Uh, for various reasons, this goddess seems like a, a prototype of Ishtar or the constellation Virgo. Uh, and Virgo in the night sky is uh, standing next to Leo the lion. And so this might be uh, Leo the lion as well, or you know, might turn into him at some point. Uh, down here, you've got one of these typical combat scenes. Uh, there's some lions attacking a bull. Uh, the bull's kind of got like a human head, though. Uh, these are the kinds of figures uh, that turned into uh, Taurus and Leo. And you've also got this uh, weird scorpion man. He's also got kind of a human head. Uh, my, to be honest, my favorite figure here, though, is this guy, this sort of evil uh, bird man demon, uh, and then this little monkey playing a flute. Uh, but they didn't make it into the Zodiac. Uh, let's see. So, uh, by the Cassite period, roughly a thousand years uh, later, the iconography of many of the zodiacal constellations had been fully formed. Some of the best evidence come from Cassite boundary stones, which are essentially legal documents that recorded land grants from the king. It's big, big stones you put in you know, your field. In addition to the text that establishes the grant, many of the stones contain images of gods who vouchsafe the contract. The images can be immediately compared with the earliest known visual representations of the Greco-Roman zodiac. Uh, so let's take a couple of examples here. Uh, 
So Mesopotamian iconography uh, on this side and Greco-Egyptian on this side. I'll talk in a minute about where this comes from, but bear with me. So 1200 BC, you've got, this is Aquarius, uh, the, the god Ea, or it's gonna become Aquarius. It's the god Ea who uh, lives in the abyssal waters. Uh, he is the goddess of life and abundance, and he's pouring some streams right out of this jar. And this eventually becomes this guy. Um, who, right, he's got this Egyptian um, headdress on, uh, and he's holding some jars, he's pouring some water into a fish. And if you actually look at the night sky, uh, Aquarius is pouring out some water, and it goes down to the constellation of the southern fish, right? So there's direct sort of link between these two things. Uh, you can also compare with, what do you have here? Capricorn, all right? Uh, Capricorn is a goat fish, right, so goat in front, fish down here, um, and it's a symbol of the god Ea again, so who, the one that becomes Aquarius, and there's also a ram's head staff. Ea carries a ram's head staff, and so this is a, all put together into one composite, and it's a symbol of the god Ea. Uh, in, in the Greco-Egyptian period, right, total correspondence, you've got goat up front, fish back here, uh, but the ram's head staff has been replaced by a person who's like riding the goat fish and just carrying a staff. Um, and then one more example, you've got Sagittarius, right? Sagittarius is a centaur, um, you know, in our minds with a bow. Originally in Mesopotamian iconography, uh, he's also got wings, and he's got two tails, one of which is the tail of a scorpion, and he's got this um, second panther head. Uh, this again, right, becomes Sagittarius uh, from the Greco-Egyptian period. Um, still got two tails, wings, panther head, uh, plus Egyptian headdress. When the Greeks adopted uh, centaurs from, from the ancient Near East, uh, in general, they got rid of the wings and the centaur tail and the panther head. It was like just too much, uh, too much for them. <laughs> so uh, these images, uh, these guys over here from 30 BCE, uh, come from this thing called the Dendra Zodiac. This is the uh, earliest uh, complete zodiac uh, representation that we have from the ancient world. Uh, it comes from the temple complex of Hathor uh, in, in Dendera, Egypt. And it's a giant sandstone slab that was on uh, the top of the temple and the roof of the temple on the inside. And you've got the celestial sphere represented by a big disc. It's being held up by four goddesses. Uh, and inside you've got uh, the zodiacs, symbols of the zodiac, which are pretty much the same as the ones that we know now. Uh, for instance, you can see here, um, where is this? This is uh, Aries, here's Taurus, right? Um, I've got sort of a sketch of it that makes it easier um, right, so here, Aries, Taurus, etc. Um, right, Sagittarius up there, Goatfish. But you've also got all these other weird constellations uh, that don't make it into the, the Greco-Roman canon. Um, my favorite two of these, whoops, yep, my favorite two of these uh, are this uh, hippopotamus god, uh, which uh, takes the place of, of Draco the dragon, and uh, the bull's foreleg which uh, replaces uh, the great bear, or is there instead of the great bear. Uh, so this is a really cool, really cool thing. Now, so depending on your perspective, the Greeks adopted, imported, co-opted, hijacked, or quite simply stole major portions of the Mesopotamian skyscape around the year 400 BCE. And here's a famous representation of it um, from the Greco-Roman period. This is the famous Farnese Atlas, which is a second century CE uh, copy of an original, a Hellenistic original. And you've got, right, this, this Titan Atlas is holding the celestial sphere. Uh, here is, a, again, a sketch of all the things that are on it. 
And you'll notice, for instance, all right, Ares and Taurus. And then here, we've got Cadus the sea monster, uh, Andromeda with her arms outstretched, Perseus, um, uh, the mom, and the dad. But you'll notice they're backwards, right? That's not the order where they appear uh, when we were just looking at them a moment ago. The reason is because uh, the Farnese Atlas represents sort of a god's eye view. You're looking outside the celestial sphere, sort of at it, whereas we, right, are in the celestial sphere, looking towards the roof. So you have to invert it to get everything in the right order. Um, so here, right, this is the right order, uh, where you look up at the night sky and Perseus, right, is to the left of Andromeda uh, and so forth. So the fifth century had witnessed an unprecedented intellectual efflorescence in a wide range of disciplines that sought to catalog and explain the natural world and our relationship to it. Uh, fields like natural philosophy, natural history, medicine, geography, ethnography, uh, the list goes on. By adopting the star maps of the Mesopotamians, the Greeks instantly imposed order on a large swath of the night sky, which meant that it could be rigorously analyzed, understood, and put to use. The immediate benefit was a systematic, empirically-based mechanism for keeping time and predicting the weather. As a whole, however, the night sky must have seemed a chaotic jumble, a mass of constellations and named stars, some old and familiar, others new and totally foreign. The first person to attempt to codify this conjuries of unorganized material and to divide the whole of the Greek sky into named constellations, i.e. not just the zodiac, but the whole sky, was a mathematician from Asia Minor named Eudoxus. Around the year 360, Eudoxus cataloged and described the relative positions of 46 constellations, all of which became canonical and still form the basis of the star maps that we use today. We've now hit the number 88, I think, but the core, or the 46 of Eudoxus. Although Eudoxus's work hasn't survived, we have a pretty good idea of what it looked like. In the early third century, an ambitious poet named Aratus versified Eudoxus's treatise, Poetry and Astronomy Intercept. In the first half of the poem, Aratus describes the positions of the 46 constellations relative to one another, establishing an orderly and tightly interconnected map of the night sky. So, for instance, um, this is obviously a much more recent map. Uh, beneath the bear's head lie the twins, and beneath her waist the crab, and beneath her hind feet the lion shines forth in splendor. Right, so you can see, right, beneath the bear, you've got the twins, beneath the stomach, crab, hind feet, lion. Uh, if you keep going, uh, if you have a mind uh, to look at the charioteer and his stars over here, uh, and report has reached you of the goat and her kids, you'll see that the whole body of the charioteer is stretched out at length to the left of the twins, right? To the left of the twins over here. Uh, while the top of his head wheels on its way opposite the bear. At the feet of the charioteer, look for the bull that is crouching there. You can see the bull sort of crouching beneath the charioteer. Aratus uses certain constellations, here the bear and the charioteer, as reference points. In other words, this interconnected network of constellations functions like a grid, an imagistic forerunner of our mathematical system of celestial coordinates. But there's something kind of funny going on. Uh, notice the bear's looking this way. The images we saw before, the bear's looking the other way. Right? What's happened is that Aratus is describing uh, something like the Farnese Atlas, right? where, where you're looking from the outside down onto the cosmic sphere. Really, everything looks like this. 
right? The bear's this way, um, and uh, the, the charioteer is to the right of the twins, not to the left. Uh, what this means is that the earliest description we have of the constellations isn't actually a description of the constellations at all. It's a description of a scientific instrument, right? A globe, uh, which is also simultaneously a work of art, right? which, is, which is really pretty cool. Now, to fuse the Greek star tradition with the new Mesopotamian constellations required more than the dispassionate uh, drafting of catalogs. As we've seen, between the time of Homer and Aratus, the Greeks had begun to associate some of their constellations with concrete mythological figures. With the arrival of the Mesopotamian astronomical imagery, a whole new cast of characters flooded the night sky. The Greeks appear to have viewed this situation as a challenge. The task now was to come up with mythological associations for all of the constellations. And if there's any way to associate multiple star clusters with the same narrative, so much the better. The goal, in some sense, must have been to impose not just geographical order on the sky, but discursive order as well. Sometimes this required the inventing of brand new mythologies. And this is exactly how Orion got connected with Scorpio. So I got Orion over here. These are the claws of Scorpio as he comes up over the horizon. We've already seen that Homer didn't have a lot to say about Orion. The storyline familiar to us from later ages runs as follows. Orion used to go hunting with the two goddesses, Leto and Artemis, a mother and daughter team associated with the hunt. Orion hunted with such skill that he threatened to kill all the animals, ah, uh, which, which angered the Earth with a capital E, who subsequently uh, sent forth a giant scorpion that stung Orion and left him dead. As one ancient writer puts it, Zeus sent Orion among the constellations out of regard for his bravery and the request of Artemis and Leo, also placing the scorpion there to commemorate the episode. Some dazzlingly ingenious stargazer, we don't know who, fabricated this entire myth out of whole cloth after the introduction of the Zodiac. Orion's existence was a given, but he was a blank canvas, just waiting to be fleshed out. Scorpio was a newcomer, and scorpions simply don't figure in Greek mythology. But since Scorpio rises in the east, just as Orion sets in the west, it made perfect sense and was wonderfully efficient to imagine that the rising scorpion is chasing a fleeing Orion. And the story grew from there, brilliantly bridging the cultural gap between old and new. Right? They imagine scorpion is chasing Orion. The bear underwent a similar creative reimagining. In the classical period, there are two bears. Right? Um, here's right, the Big Dipper again, part of Ursa Major. Here's her face and her legs. Um, Ursa Minor all right, is, is this one here. There's sort of the body and the tail. And between them right, is the dragon, and there's a dragon's head. Aratus calls these bears um, Helike, our Ursa Major, and Sinashura, our uh, Ursa Minor. But they have nothing to do with Orion. Without committing himself fully to the story, Aratus raises the possibility that two women ascended to the heavens through the will of Zeus because they took care of the god when he was a child on Crete. The poet is deliberately vague about what actually happened here, uh, leaving the reader to fill in the details. According to other sources, when Zeus was young, his mother, Rhea, hid him on Crete, far away from his violent, bloodthirsty father, Cronus, the king of the gods. Cronus knew that his children, particularly Zeus, uh, posed a threat to his sovereignty. So he decided to take care of the situation once and for all, 
by eating them. In an effort to keep Zeus out of harm's way, Rhea hid the god in a cave on the island of Crete. So far, the story is traditional and quite old. At some point, however, a twist was added. Zeus had been protected by two women, whom he subsequently transformed into bears and placed in the night sky as a token of his gratitude. This twist is manifestly a recent in, uh, invention designed to highlight Zeus's biography uh, and to give it a prominent place in the heavens. Aratus undoubtedly alludes to it because it reminds his readers of Zeus's benevolence, a key theme in the work. But Aratus's narrative is somewhat unsatisfactory since there's no logical connection between Zeus's caregivers and their subsequent identity, right? Like, why are they bears? A later source, however, playfully improves upon the situation. According to this version, when Kronos came looking for Zeus on Crete, Zeus escaped detection by turning his nurses into bears and himself into a snake. After he departed, Kronos, uh, after he de uh, deposed Kronos and established himself as king, Zeus commemorated the episode by placing images of all three animals at the top of the celestial sphere. Not only does the story make the link between the caregivers and the bears explicit, it has the added benefit of explaining why there's another circumpolar constellation between them, namely the dragon, right? So it makes this whole group, right, one sort of close-knit uh, family, as it were. And there's, there's another really famous uh, story about the two bears involving a woman named Cal uh, Callisto, um, which I'd be happy to talk about in, in the Q&A. So this kind of creative manipulation of mythology constitutes a game. The rules were simple try to bend mythology to fit the facts as comprehensively and economically as possible. And by facts, I mean the iconography and uh, nomenclature of the constellations. Clearly, there were a lot of players. We can thank our knowledge to, about many of them uh, and their stories to Eratosthenes, a scholar and poet from North Africa who belongs to the generation after Aratus. While serving as the head librarian at the Great Library of Alexandria, Eratosthenes compiled a collection of all the major myths for the constellations of Eudoxus and Aratus. The work was called Catastorisms, that is, stories about something, either alive or inanimate, that is transformed into a star or a constellation, usually with the help of a god. Although we don't have the actual text, we have a summary of it. A number of Eratosthenes' uh, stories centered on Heracles. While the stories themselves are old, the catastrophisms were invented in the fifth or fourth century uh, in a deliberate attempt to connect the disparate parts of the night sky. So I'm gonna take just two examples. Uh, first one is Heracles and the dragon. Uh, so this is our constellation Heracles. Uh, he's got his club up in the air uh, and he's kneeling with his head on the dragon, right? It's trampling the dragon. And you can see it over here, right? There's um, his kneeling leg and his foot and he's trampling on the head of the dragon. The constellation that we know as Heracles was originally called the Kneeler, just the kneeling figure. And his identity generated a good deal of playful speculation. Perhaps it was an image of Theseus, kneeling at the rock under which the emblems of his paternity were hidden. Or maybe it represented Orpheus, cowering before the mob of angry bockets who were about to tear him limb from limb. Eventually, a consensus emerged. The figure represented Heracles, standing on the dragon that guarded the apples of the Hesperides. Fetching these golden apples, located either in Libya or to the far north, constituted Heracles' 11th labor. And in most versions, Heracles had to kill the dragon to get them. 
According to Eratosthenes, Zeus commemorated the event by placing an image, uh, the image of Heracles trampling the dragon at the top of the celestial spear. So again, it serves sort of a commemorative purpose, right? it commemorates the past. The story won out over the, uh, its rivals precisely because it explained two constellations at once while simultaneously connecting this part of the sky with another. Right? Sort of, it's better uh, to have fewer characters and get them all connected. So another example would be Cancer. Cancer the crab. Uh, here he kind of looks more like a lobster. Here's the gist of what Eratosthenes had to say about the crab. It would seem that it was placed among the stars by Hera, because when Heracles was trying to kill the Hydra uh, with the assistance of the others, it jumped out of the lake and bit him on the foot. They say that Heracles, in a fury, crushed it with his foot. Right? He likes to crush things with his feet. And the crab attained this great on the great honor of being numbered among the 12 constellations of the zodiac as a consequence. It may seem odd that such an insignificant actor should claim so great a distinction, but it's actually quite clever. This is the only crab in Greek mythology. Right? Here's an example. You can see the crab coming after Heracles. It's the only crab in Greek mythology. If the Greeks had invented their own zodiacal constellations, they never would have devoted one of them to such a culturally insignificant animal. But they didn't invent their own zodiacal constellations. And since one of them was a crab, they made a virtue of necessity and gained a little more connectivity among the fixed stars. All told, Heracles lends his biography to nine constellations. Why? Greece was not a unified country or a sovereign city-state, or sorry, a sovereign nation-state, but rather an idea rooted in a common language and common cultural heritage, including a common mythology. Heracles' travels took him all over the Greek world, which meant that his life connected different places and periods to one another. By ridding the countryside of dangerous monsters and terrifying beasts, Heracles cleared a space for Greek civilization to thrive and made it possible for a sense of Greek cultural unity to emerge. Fifth and fourth century stargazers realized this. Instead of making the sky Athenian or Spartan, Theban or Corinthian, Heracles made it Greek. Now, not all the Mesopotamian constellations could be so easily combined with the narratives of Greek mythology. Capricorn provides a delightful example. So Capricorn, as we've seen, Capricorn is a goatfish, right? Uh, the Greeks had no idea what to do with this bizarre hybrid. It corresponds to absolutely nothing in the Greek mythological repertoire. Faced with this embarrassing situation, someone decided to invoke the god Pan, who was traditionally a half man and half goat. Right? So you see he's got a little goat head, goat horns, goat feet. Pretty big difference, though. <laughs> um, as Eratosthenes put it, the figure, Capricorn, uh, the figure is similar in appearance to Pan and is moreover modeled on him. His lower limbs are formed like those of a beast, uh, and he has horns on his head. So, I mean, yeah, I guess. Uh, so far, so good. But Eratosthenes goes on to explain that during the epic battle between the uh, Olympians and the monstrous Titans, this anonymous Pan-like figure picked up a giant seashell and blew on it, thereby terrifying the Titans and securing a victory for Team Zeus. Zeus placed him in the sky to commemorate the service, another act of commemoration. Uh, and to quote Eratosthenes' summary, he uh, has the tail of a fish 
to indicate that he discovered the shell in the sea. <laughs> this kind of associative logic pushes the limits of credibility. Once installed, the Mesopotamian iconography could not be wished away. And so we're left with a rationale that almost feels deliberately absurd. I'm kind of convinced that whoever came up with this idea was like basically like winking and like nudging you uh, when he said it. But what are the constellations? Despite the stories we've been considering, many writers are clearly aware that the constellations themselves, as opposed to the actual stars, are really human constructs. The following story about the constellation Lepus, the hare, comes from the uh, Latin treatise on astronomy that might have been written by Julius Haginus, a freedman of the Emperor Augustus and the chief librarian of Rome's first public library. It's a connection between star mythology and librarians. So uh, here's the hare, little bunny ears, bunny tail. In the distant past, there were no hares on the island of Leros, a tiny strip of land in the northern Aegean just off the coast of Asia Minor. A young man who was particularly fond of the animal brought over a pregnant female for the mainland and took great care of it. His enthusiasm proved infectious, and soon everyone on Leros was raising hares. Needless to say, the situation got out of hand as renegade rabbits took to the countryside, devoured the crops, and quite simply overran the island. Eventually, the islanders managed to expel the invaders, but the astronomers decided to establish an image of the hare in the sky, quote, to remind people that in this life, nothing is so desirable that one cannot subsequently derive more sorrow from it than joy. Constellation and its moral are entirely human, and also, I suspect, somewhat playful. As for the actual stars, the general consensus was that they consisted of fire, or the mysterious fire-like substance, ether. More importantly, though, they were also divine. A firm conviction that the stars were gods, pr uh, promoted in crucial ways by Plato and Aristotle, paved the way for an entirely new framework through which to understand and interact with the heavens, namely astrology. From the perspective of astrological discourse, the stars indicate, or potentially bring about, and actually determine events on Earth. The basic idea makes perfect sense. Just think about the ways in which the sun and the moon impact the world around us. Like the signs of the zodiac themselves, Western astrology originated in ancient Mesopotamia. It appears to have migrated to the Greek world at some point in the second century BCE, probably via Egypt. Again, I'd be happy to say a little bit more about Babylonian astrology uh, in the Q&A. As it developed in the Greco-Roman world, astrology was first and foremost a matter of geometry. Ta-da! For the purposes of casting a simple horoscope, the zodiac is represented as a circle divided into 12 equal signs of 30 degrees. And each of these signs has a name, right? Aries, Taurus, Gemini, etc. Right? Here's Aries, Taurus, Gemini, all the way around. These symbols, by the way, um, are not, uh, don't appear in the ancient uh, manuscripts. And these are more recent inventions. Uh, although there are symbols for the sun and the moon. Um, so at the center of the circle is you, right? The zodiac is the ecliptic circling around you right here in the middle. Before making a prediction, the astrologer must figure out in which of the 12 signs the wandering stars stand at a given moment. Greek astrologers, uh, astrologers obtained this astronomical data from almanacs, right, the figures in which were ultimately of Babylonian origin. 
Today, we just use computers. Once the wandering stars have been situated and a few other variables have been determined, the astrologer considers the geometrical relationships that connect them and interprets these relationships based on its own craft knowledge. So what you see here, right, um, <clears throat> these various signs indicating the planets show you where in the zodiac they were at this specific time from a specific location, right? Horoscopes are always place and time specific. And then, you know, for extra fun, you've got these, um, other weird symbols. So this is the lot of fortune. Uh, its location is determined by a formula. This thing, medium chylum, uh, is, is another sort of variable that allows you to get extra uh, oomph or to make it more complicated. Uh, and then you basically, right, you look at all these angles that pop up and you have to, you have to interpret the geometry. Here's an example of an actual astrological prediction made by a practicing astrologer that was found on a scrap of papyrus buried in an ancient trash heap in the Egyptian town of Oxyrhynchus. Right. I wasn't able to find a picture of the actual papyrus, but it looked like that. Year 27 of Caesar Augustus, Faofi 5, according to the Augustan calendar, about the third hour of the day, Sun in Libra, Moon in Pisces, Saturn in Taurus, Jupiter in Cancer, Mars and Virgo, the papyrus is sort of torn or, or damaged. Taurus is then setting, lower midheaven, Aquarius. Uh, there are dangers. Take care for 40 days because of Mars. Now, someone has consulted an astrologer about his or her immediate future. Right? Maybe uh, whether, wanting to know whether or not it's a good time to do something. And the astrologer has provided a written response, beginning with a date and time, which modern scholars have worked out to be roughly 9 a.m. on October 2nd in the year 4 BCE. Take a second to think about how cool this is, right? We know that an actual person went to an astrologer, right, at 9 a.m. on October 2nd, right, like 2,000 years ago, 2,015 years ago. Um, we have, like, the receipt from it. <laughs> What's striking from our perspective is the implicit, and again, I, I could say a lot more about this if, if you guys are, are interested, but what's uh, striking from our perspective, the perspective of this talk, is the implicit distinction between the signs of the astrologer and the constellations of the night sky. The astrologer's signs constitute a coordinate system uh, that make it possible, uh, sorry, that, uh, that make it possible to visualize the geometrical relationships between the wandering stars. Right? That's all they're good for, to figure out how the stars relate to one another. The mythology and iconography of the constellations play no role in the process of astrological prediction. In fact, the process was so abstract that Greeks and Romans regularly called astrologers mathematicians, and they saw no fundamental difference between the activities of astrologers on the one hand and astronomers on the other. Right? They were the same people. The same word was used for both of them. They are called mathematici. And this is a conjunction that persisted until um, you know, people like uh, Kepler and Galileo and Newton were also really into astrology. Astrology became immensely popular. And once we get outside the astrologer's workshop, as it were, we find the iconography and the mythology of the constellations does actually exert a profound influence on the meaning of the signs. So I'll close with one example. The imperial biographer Suetonius tells the following story about the emperor Augustus and his right-hand man, Agrippa. The date is 44 BCE. Julius Caesar has just been assassinated, and the two young men have fled Rome. The situation is precarious, and the reader knows that they must survive 17 years of near continual civil war before Augustus can claim to have saved the Roman Republic. Here's what Suetonius says. 
Having withdrawn to Greece, Augustus went with Agrippa to the studio of the astrologer Theogenes. When a great and almost incredible future was predicted for Agrippa, who was the first to put his questions, Augustus concealed the details of his own birth and kept refusing to reveal them through fear or shame that he himself would turn out to be of lesser importance. However, when, after much persuasion, he slowly and unwillingly disclosed them, Theogenes jumped up and venerated him. Soon, Augustus had acquired such faith in fate that he made public his horoscope and had a silver coin struck with the image of the star sign Capricorn under which he had been born. Right, so Augustus is you know, very modest. Um, <clears throat> he's sort of shy about the astrologer, this foreign guy. Uh, but then once he tells him his information, the astrologer's like, oh my God, you're gonna like, you know, become the ruler of the world. <laughs> Whether or not these events took place, the fact that the story circulated says a lot. Imperial propaganda cultivated the idea that Rome's greatness was written in the stars, and that fate itself determined who would rule the world. Greek intellectuals, including astrologers, backed up such claims with empirical evidence. The scientific rigor of their procedures and the antiquity of the discipline itself, it goes all the way back to Mesopotamia, lent weight to their pronouncements. What's more, we know that Augustus did in fact publish his horoscope and mint coins of the type that Suetonius is talking about. So here are two examples, right? Google Augustus, Capricorn, and coin, and you'll see a bunch of pictures. You've got Augustus's head on one side, and then you've got Capricorn, right, goatfish over here. Uh, and he's holding, between his goat feet, he's holding an image of the world, right, symbolizing that Augustus has conquered the world. Uh, this thing is an oar symbolizing uh, Augustus's victory in an important naval battle. And you've got a, a cornucopia up here, the image of the, the horn of plenty. Um, similarly down here, right, you've just got Capricorn, uh, a little simpler. And this um, uh, phrase is referring to a, an important diplomatic uh, victory that Augustus won in, in the 20s. So both of these coins date to around 16 or 18 BCE. In addition to such coins, Augustus included images of Capricorn on sculptural reliefs, terracottas, paintings, and jewelry, essentially co-opting the symbol uh, as his personal trademark. That Augustus invested so heavily in astrological propaganda indicates that such symbolism carried significant weight with the greater populace. Right? You wouldn't do it if it didn't mean something to people. But why emphasize Capricorn? Capricorn was Augustus's moon sign, an important astrological relationship. Right? My moon sign uh, is, is Aquarius. My star sign is Sagittarius. When you say, I'm a Sagittarius, you mean your, your sun sign. Um, but this, the moon sign, was, was more important for Augustus. Capricorn's primary claim to fame uh, is that it houses the sun at the time of the winter solstice, when the hours of daylight gradually start to increase, and we begin to sense that spring is on its way. Augustus promoted his horoscopic connection with the goatfish to suggest that both he and his rule marked the fated, destined, divinely sanctioned beginning of a new era, the heaven-sent arrival of a new spring. This was a politically expedient and powerfully reassuring message after 17 years of civil war. The rise and spread of astrology fundamentally altered the ways individuals and communities thought about divinity, communicated with the gods, and understood their place in the world. To be sure, traditional forms of divination didn't disappear, but the balance of power was disrupted. Some members of the ruling elite were better at negotiating these shifting dynamics than others. 
Near the end of his life, Augustus himself issued an edict making it illegal for diviners to prophesy to anyone alone or to prophesy to anyone at all about a person's death. Knowledge is power. It's not hard to imagine why an aging emperor might want to discourage his subjects from making predictions, especially about the end of life. Indeed, both before and after Augustus's edict, astrologers as a class were periodically expelled from both the city and the Italian peninsula. But they always returned. Indeed, astrology proved remarkably tenacious, much like the iconography and mythology of the night sky itself. We still have, and Capricorn still looks like this. So in conclusion, the Greek sky is wonderfully diverse. And while the work of scholars like Eudoxus and Eratosthenes imposed coherence and order on the celestial sphere, the ancient skyscape remained profoundly multiple, discordant, and cacophonous. A fundamental tension dominates this space, that between order and chaos, reasoned explanation and fanciful invention, scientific knowledge and exuberant artistic play. In the Greek sky, all of these categories are mutually implicated in one another breaking down any distinction we might like to make between science and art. Thank you. So um, yeah, I would be happy to uh, take any questions um, about uh, sort of any of this or you know, your star sign or something. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so there are lots of inanimate objects in the sky. Um, Libra is an interesting one uh, because it originally, so Libra is the balance, and it was originally part uh, of Scorpio. Uh, it was Scorpio's claws were super huge. Uh, and when they divided the uh, zodiac into 12 signs for the 12 months, uh, they had to chop it in half and make something else out of it. Um, I don't know the specific reason why they chose a balance, but the balance did end up being important. Um, in terms of you know, political propaganda, people argued about what the uh, moon sign of the city of Rome was. And there's, so there's a debate about when Rome was founded, like what year, what day, and people, you know, part of this was uh, people cast the horoscope of Rome, and it turned out that Rome, the, the moon sign of Rome is Libra. Uh, and so Libra became the symbol of Roman power, just like Capricorn is a symbol um, of Augustus's power. And that again is sort of, there's a clear combination of scholarly debate and something that's like kind of just fun and quirky. Um, so I don't know specifically why Libra, but there are various inanimate objects um, up there in the sky. Um, yeah, question. Um, did they use the stories of the constellations as a mnemonic? to teach people what was what and let them memorize it better? Um, yeah, so I mean, it certainly helps uh, if you have a connected story, right? You've got Hercules, did all these things, here are all the signs. It makes it much simpler than trying to you know, have a different story for every single thing. Uh, but unfortunately, they, they couldn't impose total unity, right, on, on, the, on the signs. One of the reasons that people wrote poems about the signs, though, was because it's easier to remember a poem uh, than you know, just a bunch of numbers or just like a list. Uh, poems are in verse, uh, which is just inherently easier to sort of commit to memory. And so uh, that was a big part of it as well. Um, 
but yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, trying to connect them all together with these figures makes it easier uh, to keep track of them. And, sure. and did they use poems and mythos to teach other kinds of science other than astronomy? So there's a whole tradition um, of well, what's called didactic poetry, poetry that, that teaches you stuff. And some of that uh, is sort of moral, uh, you know, ethical teachings. But uh, especially starting around the year, like in the 300s and 200s, people got really into using poetry to teach you about science. So there's like a great poem, for instance, about uh, poisonous animals and like the antidotes that you need to take them. It's like a, a medicine poem about poisonous animals. Um, and there are poems about farming and about um, marine biology. And there are a bunch of ones about the stars. The stars turned out to be the most popular. So this Greek poem by Aratus, actually, um, by some accounts, was the second or third most popular text in the ancient world. Um, based on the papyri that we have, we have the most papyri of Homer. Not surprising. Everybody knew Homer. Homer is the be-all and end-all. The person that we have the second most papyrus evidence for is the poem about the stars. And it was translated into Latin uh, like five times. It was translated into Latin by Cicero. It was translated into Latin uh, by um, a relative of Augustus's named Germanicus and a couple of other people. Uh, Ovid translated into Latin. It was this thing that people just loved and found amazing. Um, so weird from our perspective, um, but there's a really close connection that the Greeks and Romans felt there. I now have two questions. Okay. Uh, is there like an English copy of that poem? Absolutely. Cool. Can I get the name of that? <laughs> so the star poem is called uh, Phenomena, right? Like um, phenomenal, right? It's like the, the phenomena. Um, and I mean, I think if you, if you just Google it on you know, Amazon or something, you should be able to find it. Um, the guy's, the poet's name, right? Uh, where, where was that? Right away. Um, Aratus, right, is his name. Oh, uh, cool. And the other thing I wanted to know is, was there anything about Mesopotamian um, uh, astrology that you thought was really, really cool, but you couldn't shoehorn <laughs> into the presentation? <laughs> so the reason Babylonian astrology came into being is actually really cool. <laughs> um, Babylonian astrologers were like bureaucrats. They were civil servants. Uh, whose like, sole job was just to keep track of the wandering stars, right? Like the planets, uh, the sun, and the moon. And since they thought that the stars were divine, that they were gods, and they thought that their movements, right, sort of caused or indicated stuff on Earth, uh, the idea was that if you could predict where they were going to be, you know what was going to be in store for the state, right? So it was kind of like the king wants to know, is there going to be a drought next year? Is there going to be a war? Um, is there going to be, I don't know, some, some kind of giant uh, earthquake or something. And so there's this whole group of civil servants, right, whose sole job was like to watch the stars and, and do this. And they wanted to get better and better at it, right? The king says, well, you know, it's not just enough to tell me there's gonna be a drought next year, I wanna know five years from now. This is where uh, astronomy, mathematical astronomy basically was born, right? The idea that they needed to be able to make these kinds of predictions with greater accuracy and further ahead of time. And so astronomy kind of grew out of astrology and the two sort of grew together. Um, when it came to Greece, this is totally different because uh, again, Greece doesn't have a centralized um, sort of administration. There's no one head of anything. There's no sort of bureaucracy to speak of. Um, but it's just great that right, it'd be like if we had you know, on the, cab you know, the 
cabinet, the president's cabinet, there's a uh, secretary of astrology or something um, <laughs> keeping track of all this stuff. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, any other takers? Yeah. But the Mesopotamians named the 12 zodiac signs. Why did they, what was the purpose for that? Was that just so it started out, we think, uh, with just the four cardinal points, right, east, west, north, and south. Uh, and so, right, that was uh, around the year 3000 or 2500, that would have been um, Taurus, Leo, uh, Aquarius, uh, and Scorpio. And the idea there was that it, it was, again, timekeeping, right, to sort of keep track of, of the where the sun was and what the time is. Gradually, they ordered more or developed more, it seems like, just to fill out the circle. And some of them had clear sort of mythological associations or, or sort of symbolic value. So um, lions and bulls were symbols of royal power. So it was sort of like the king's symbols were like up in the sky and the sun is you know, moving through the orbit of like the king's sphere of influence. Uh, others, right, we saw were, were gods. Um, but that process took them a long time. They didn't actually develop all 12 of the signs until some point between um, 900 and 600 probably. Whereas they had the first four, you know, around the year like uh, almost 3,000 perhaps. So they were content with just like four for a while. Um, but yeah, it seems like they just wanted to fill it out with symbols of, of sort of national symbols and symbols of the gods. I have a question about the 13th sign of Zodiac. They talked about it not very long time ago in the news. They said that um, in people um, in equator zones, they see kind of like a bigger zodiac circle. Mm -hmm. I can barely pronounce it, Ophiuchus, so I don't know. Can you tell anything about it? Um, I don't know specifically uh, about a 13th um, sign of the zodiac, but I mean, if you think about, sorry, let's see if I can go back to one of these astronomical, too far? Nope, not far enough. Uh, that's one. Okay, so you see the way that these things right, are at an angle like this, right? The closer, so this is from the northern hemisphere. If you were to just like walk south, right, towards the equator, um, these would all start moving up, right, in, in sort of parallel. If you got to the equator, all of these it would be three straight lines up and down. So all the stars rise directly overhead and set directly um, sort of behind you. Uh, similarly, if you were to go all the way to the North Star, uh, they would kind of flatten out. They would fall down like this until the point where you just have circles going like that and like this, and then some down here. And so you just see from the North Pole, all the stars would just be spinning around. Nothing would ever rise or set. Uh, and so that, that does affect right, the way that, that the stars look, the stars that you can see and sort of I guess maybe how big the zodiac is or how you would, would divide it. Um, so I can't speak to that specifically, but that is like a cool thought experiment. But, but there, is, there is actually a 13th constellation that the sun goes into, which is called like Ophiuchus or something like oh, that. Okay. Um, yeah, it kind mm -hmm. of slices down between two of the st stars of the zodiac. So let me see. All right, so yeah, Ophiuchus. Um, I don't know if it appears there. It's he is not here. Let's find him somewhere else. Ophiuchus uh, 
is probably an older constellation. Um, he's not a part of the zodiac. He's further up. Um, well, I, I just know that with the modern outlines of what the stars are that, is, that astronomers use nowadays, the sun does appear in Orpheucus on occasion, uh, for a couple of days a year. Okay. Uh, yeah. Here is Orpheucus, this guy here. Yeah. Uh, he's the snake holder. Uh, that's probably related um, to the, the, pre the precession of the equinoxes, uh, would be my guess. So this is something that people who uh, criticize astrology love to point out. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not taking a stand either way. Uh, but that the equinoxes uh, don't actually occur um, where they do on the, on the zodiac chart anymore. Um, everything has actually moved pretty much a full constellation uh, away since the time of, um, of Aratus. And since the time of you know, the Mesopotamians, when they like, invented this thing, it's even further off. Uh, so there's a complete disconnect between the actual constellations and the astrological sort of apparatus. Um, so, I mean, yeah. Basically, the stuff that I'm looking at here uh, is all a reflection of how it looked around the year 300 or 200. But actually, there's still a little bit of a problem because the constellations you mentioned earlier, that they, they made the constellations all the same size, except they're not. <laughs> Aries is a tiny little constellation, yeah. Virgo is a great big one. So Aries, the sun's really only in Aries for two weeks out of the year, whereas it could, it's like six weeks for Virgo or Leo. Yes, they're, they're different sizes, and you know, Aries isn't even on the ecliptic. It's like to the north. Yeah. Um, so it's all kind of an illusion, <laughs> but a very powerful illusion. <laughs> any, uh, any other takers? Okay, well, thank you.